everybody's in this all together kind of thing. It's the idea, you know, whether it's the idea that leaders eat last um, or that everybody shares in the hardship, like that really what it was all about. Welcome back to the Northern Sentinels podcast. On this episode, I sit down with Alistair Luft. Al grew up on the family farm in Alberta, where hard work and contributing to something bigger than yourself was part of everyday life. After a brief stop at a civilian university, he decided to join the Army and quickly felt a sense of purpose in his new profession. After graduating from military college and a brief stop in an Austrian prison, he found himself in Afghanistan with Canada's first mission after 9-11. As a young platoon commander on the forward edge of a new war, he experienced firsthand the challenges of leading Canadians in a combat zone. A U.S. fighter pilot mistook his platoon for enemy and dropped a 500-pound bomb on their night training activity. Four of his soldiers were killed and many more wounded in the tragedy. He completed four more deployments to Afghanistan with our Special Operations Forces Command, but eventually decided to leave the high tempo of operations for a more balanced life. This is when he found a love of creative writing. An author of four books, Alistair's latest offering is called The Spark, a no-holds-barred guide to saving the world. As a listener of the NSP, I can assure you, The Spark will be something you enjoy reading. Without further ado, my conversation with Alistair Luft. Alistair, great to, to have the chance to talk to you today. And uh, before we get things started, I, I do have to do a, a quick pitch right at the start and to say I, I absolutely love the the work you're doing with the Spark. It's uh, it's great, and uh, we've spoken about this a little bit before. And we could certainly spend this or probably a couple of more episodes talking about uh, about that and and the work you've done in, in terms of. Uh, that effort. So uh, I just wanted to plug that right at the start because I really enjoy reading, uh, reading it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate, uh, well, one, I appreciate being invited to come in, uh, to talk and obviously for the spark, um, a lot of work has gone into that. So it's nice to see, it's nice to see it having some resonance and, you know, obviously I can talk about that as well, you know, <laughs> whenever and for as long as, uh, anyone wants to talk about it, probably. <laughs> yeah. I think we'll, uh, we'll certainly get to that towards the end because it's just part, it's a natural sort of flow of the story is that, you know, where the spark is and, and at this stage of your life, but perhaps we, uh, we go back to the beginning and give us a bit of a sense of the, uh, the left family beginnings and where it all started. Yeah, I mean, so I grew up on a farm in Alberta, you know, just outside of Calgary, very different than what it looks like right now. And, uh, you know, on, on gravel roads and not too far, you know, <laughs> you know our nearest neighbor being about a, a mile away, you know, it's kind of time to ourselves on the farm, um, just doing chores or just occupying ourselves. You know, people joke around about the the eighties or the, you know, generation X these days about how they were kind of kicked outside and, and told, you know, we'll see you at supper or whatever like that. But that was really what it was kind of like for me growing up on a farm was, you know, obviously with chores and stuff, but yeah, like keep yourself occupied and we'll, um, see you when it's time, you know, for a meal or, or when something's happening. Yeah. I, I told my daughter, um, the same sort of thing about when I was a kid in cold Lake and my, my dad was at the, the base there about how, 
you know, the sun would come up, you get on your bike and then you just sort of disappear until supper time. And maybe you had a little bit of money in your pocket to get something somewhere, but, or maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very foreign today. Yeah. And I was just, I was having this conversation with my daughters actually, just about some of the stuff I had done because there was no, like I wasn't being supervised <laughs> and it was just that freedom to kind of make mistakes uh, a little bit, even though looking back now, some of the consequences of those mistakes, you know, could have been, you know, pretty grievous harm <laughs> to a certain extent, but uh, you know, none of that happened. And it's just that freedom to explore um, and just, tr you know, do trial and error on your own. It was very uh, liberating, I guess. Now I'm, hindsight is, uh, is always great, but uh, yeah, it was good. Yeah. I like to think of us as a little bit of the, the lawn dart generation. Yeah. We, we all su survived that backyard game. Yeah. So the left family, like, what's the, what's the background? Where did your family, you know, come from originally and were they always in Alberta? So my family on my dad's side are um, what's called Volga Germans, I guess. Is uh, We've read a few studies about it. So um, what those were basically in the 1800s, uh, Russia was trying to entice people to come and settle the western uh, the western part of the uh, of the country and so had um, you know enticed a, a lot of Germans to move um, to the western part of the country so my family through a you know many years or many generations ago were part of those uh, was part of that group that had moved to Russia and then were granted you know uh, very much rights or whatever you know they could uh, have their own farms or their own collectives and not have to serve in the Russian army, not have to pay taxes, et cetera, to, you know, to get them to go. As time went by, some of those rights were eroded to a certain extent. So the, the right not to have to serve in the Russian army was being taken away. And um, that also coincided with the settlement, you know, so we're talking about um, later in the 1800s now coming up on, on the 1900s, that was also, you know, part of the time of mass settling in North America. And so through a confluence of factors, you know, my family would have moved from, uh, from the part they had settled in Russia and, and came across to, uh, to North America, whether or not they settled first, there is some different accounts about whether or not they, you know, people settled in North America or sorry, in the United States or, or Canada first, uh, to the best of my knowledge, my family always settled, you know, always lived in Alberta and it's a very, all the names in my hometown, um, or the home area where we're at the farming community is very Germanic. Like we've got Luft, which in German would have had an E on the end and, you know, Luft, I always, uh, I always get that. It means air. Uh, but there's lots of like Hegel's and Schmaltz's, Poff and Ross. Um, it's very, in the area where I grew up, it's a very German area just because, you know, it was very similar stories for most of the people who settled there. So my mom is, well, is from Scotland. So she's actually, she's a Canadian now. She came to, uh, she came to Canada um, actually what had happened was that my dad was married before my mom. So he had a first wife and then, uh, he had four kids and then she died in a car accident and his, uh, my dad's first wife was related to my mom through a couple generate, uh, you know, a couple distant cousins. Um, there's a grandmother back in, in Scotland, a uh, great, great grandmother, I think of ours, grandma Cunningham, who had like 10 or 13 kids or whatever. So a quite wide network. Anyways, my mom was actually on a, uh, not a post, uh, post school trip, but, 
was basically, you know, taking that opportunity to travel the world a little bit and was in Quebec actually working for a summer when my dad's first wife died. And because uh, they were connected through family, they reached out and, you know, basically asked my mom um, if she'd be willing to go to Alberta to, to help my dad, uh, you know, raise these four kids as a, you know, a male farmer. And he's very much you know, my dad was born in 1930, so very much a different kind of gener- generation. Right. So, you know, um, the family kind of pulled strings behind the scenes, and my mom went to Alberta to to help him sort of raise these kids. And then one thing led to another, and um, you know, like to make a long story short, they eventually got married, and she decided to to, to stay in Alberta and um, try life on for size on a farm. Yeah. So, was that her first exposure to? To living on a farm, to that sort of rural environment. Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, yeah, I mean, the area where they lived in Scotland was, I mean, not a city, but certainly not. Uh, and they had like, um, you know, a property outside of a town, so they had a, you know, some some land to themselves, but not a farm. And you know, going back to even what Alberta was like when I grew up, you know, still with gravel roads, but this, you know, project even farther back. Um, so her mother-in-law, you know, was, uh, you know, born 19, 1910 or 1905, had grown up, lived through the depression, lived through the age where farms had to be largely self-sufficient, you know, had lived through the area era when threshing crews would come through the countryside and, you know, for a period of a week or so, she would just have this massive kitchen going, feeding threshing crews, um, as they worked from farm to farm. So now all of a sudden my, my mom coming from, you know, Scotland and, uh, you know, <laughs> where she had grown up, um, with her dad's garage and, and things and now transplanted to this farm in Alberta where there's no one really nearby. And these expectations, you know, of just hard sort of like settlers, uh, work in the land and, uh, being self-sufficient on a farm. And I know it was a bit of a culture shock for her, um, but, you know, she persevered, she persevered through it. And I think one of the things she found, and I think still to this day is, is working with animals has been one of the most rewarding things in her life. Uh, her mom was a vet, uh, one of the first women vets in Scotland, actually. Um, and so working with animals has been just like a phenomenal thing for, her, I think, a highlight of her life. Hmm. I wonder if that was one of the things that uh, she looked at when she was sort of making this decision of saying, oh, but you know what? I really like animals as well. So there's another another outlet here that I get to get to explore. That's, that's kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Like I haven't actually had that many conversations with her about, um, you know, about her, her decision-making or what it was that sort exactly. of tipped it thinking. for. Yeah, yeah. You know, like what was it that, uh, you know, what was the tipping point for her that, just, that made her decide to, to go? And the relationship I had with my dad, you know, he was quite a bit older than me when I was born. So he would have been 48, I think when I was born, and very much, you know, uh, he, he worked uh, worked a lot um, on a farm, and also having his own business. And you know that was so we didn't see uh, I didn't see a lot of him, and it was only you know recently, you know, since I moved away that we actually started to have like real conversations. I think about you know what he was thinking and uh, certain things that happened when he was younger. Um, and right up until, you know, right up until, well, he died this past summer and it was right up until, you know, he passed that we were having conversations about what things were like for him, you know, when he was 20 or so. So, so all that to say, I, I don't know a lot about, 
you know, how they came to fall in love, um, or the things they did, because, you know, it's, you always, you know, you, it's always hard to imagine your parents being young, um, or so I've heard. Right. And it's just like, I, I don't know really what it was that, uh, that, that did that for them. So, yeah, but it's interesting. So you were born and raised on this family farm that had been in the yeah. family for generations. Yeah. I don't know exactly. Like, I don't know the precise year when our family settled it, but certainly as far as I can remember, it's been, I mean, it's been on our family for over a hundred, over a hundred years. Definitely. Yeah. And my dad lived there his entire life. Um, like he died, he was 90, 93, um, 93 turning 94. And he had lived on that farm his entire life. Um, so yeah, quite a bit, of a lot of, a lot of history there. And what was life like as a, as a farm kid growing up in Alberta? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's a good question, you know, and I think looking back on it now, it seems, you know, like we did chores often and uh, we were pretty isolated in terms of, you know, we lived a couple miles or kilometers away from, from people and it was school, but I remember it being like a lot of, a lot of fun. Like there was hard work, definitely. Um, but also, you know, having a lot of time to just, you know, do like to play or do our, do our own things and being outside a lot. Um, a lot of things with, with animals, obviously, but also riding, riding bikes. Like it was good. I'd say we didn't, we weren't, you know, the cliche about farmers is they're not, uh, they're not money rich, but, uh, you know, have a lot of things in, in other, I mean, if we always, we always had enough food. Um, you know, we always had enough like clothes are always super comfortable, um, with everything that we had. Were we rolling in money? Absolutely not. But I never, that was never something that really occurred to me or really bothered me. It was, uh, it was good. Yeah. What are some of the values that you, you learned from a rural childhood? Uh, and do you think, you think those are continue to be relevant today or do you ever feel that your kind of view of the world shaped by your childhood may be a little antiquated at all? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I was thinking about this and it's hindsight is sometimes obviously, you know, as they say, 2020 or whatever, but you know, one of the, one of the things, one of the things on the farm, I think that I learned certainly is the value, well, is that the work never ends. Um, and the, and associated with that is hard work. And I was, Tied that into a little bit. Uh, I tied that into a little bit. I think. Well, sorry. Just so, the, so on that thought itself of the work never ending, and I think that that does have value still today, because because here, here's I think the, the reference is that often it's easy to fall into you know what could be called a milestone mind, mindset. You know, if I just do this, that's going to be enough for me. If I'm just able to get promoted to the next rank, I'll, I'll have made it. If I'm just able to earn a certain amount of money or, if, you know, whatever it is. Like I read an article this morning. If I'm just, if I was just able to have a partner or whatever, I'd, I would be happy or whatever like that. But the thing is, is, you know, like on a farm, the work is never done. Like no matter what milestones you have, it's seasonal. There's something that's going to come more for it. And I think that that's really valuable because the reality is, is, you know, when you live that milestone mindset that there's always one more thing, well, you never reach your, you never reach your destination and you live in this perpetual mindset that, you know, you can't enjoy the present moment because there's always something missing. Understanding, you know, that there's certain things you don't control. 
And no matter how hard you, you know, try to change that, there's, you can't control it. And that's really, um, especially pertinent in a, in a country like ours, right? Like in the wintertime, it's going to snow. And no matter how hard you, you know, you, you know, on a farm, there's no matter how hard you try to fight that, you're not changing that. So, you know, you can either tilt at that windmill or you can, you know, adapt to that particular circumstance. And I think that that principle ends up being something that is pertinent in everybody's life right now. It's just a question of applying it to your specific circumstance. What are those things that you don't control, no matter how hard you try to do it, but are still going to impact you regardless? And then, you know, how do you interact with that situation in a way where you're not, you know, beating your head against the wall, but it's a way that's productive and you're able to, you know, be relevant to that situation and interact with it in a way that's positive as opposed to obstructionist and is going to prevent you from, you know, <laughs> getting the most out of that moment that, that you can. Um, it's very, it seems like it's very esoteric, you know, from in the heart, in the fall we harvest. <laughs> but I think the principle is still, is still there. Like that's super, that is super pertinent for today, uh, for any time really. Um, and there's one, there's one other thing I think, which is relevant and it's tied into that a little bit, which is this idea of like on a farm and self-sufficiency to a certain extent, there's a, there's a concept, which I understand from, um, a Marshall concept, which is, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly in Japanese, it would be ben, ben fugio, which loosely translated, I think means 10,000 changes, no surprises. And uh, part of that idea would be that, you know, life is a matter of change. Life, life is not static. In fact, you could argue from a certain point of view that once you become static, you've already started to, to die, basically, right? Because life is it's constantly changing. So it's not a question of, you know, in interacting with life or survival or persistence or whatever. It's not a question so much of, you know, like getting that one, you know, from a martial perspective, getting that one capability or that one technique, which is going to be your, your go-to one. Um, because what happens, and we know this uh, in a defense perspective, is that we build a capability and then our adversary builds a counter capability. And then it's this continual interplay where we have to continue evolving. And the minute you stop evolving, you you're irrelevant. So there's always going to be some sort of change. Um, but it's how, it's how you can like adapt to change and be open to change. And that's the no surprise part where it's this resilience and flexibility. And that's, you know, again, that's something with a farm as well too, because, um, you know, there's going to be a year where you're going to get a drought or there's going to be a year where hail wipes out your crop or, so how do you adapt to those, you know, those changes, no surprises, which is, you know, through resilience. Um, and then, so you see these farms that, you know, have backups, uh, farmers, you know, certainly from my own frame of reference, you know, my dad had a second job in a company as an offset against risk. Um, you know, so if the cattle prices weren't doing well, well, he's not, he's not all his eggs right. are in one basket. Right. And that's, I think, Again, it's a little, maybe it's a bit of a tenuous link to this idea of, you know, 10,000 changes, no, no surprises. But I do think that that was in play without me knowing it. Um, and then being able to look back now, you can see that thread existing. And I think that that's a, that's a really relevant idea today as well, because as we know, um, you know, changes are happening all the time. And it's very, you know, it's very difficult to, 
to stay resilient in the face of some of these uh, some of these changes that are happening, and a lot of the trends would suggest that the consequences of certain things, whether that's climate change or economic turmoil or geopolitical conflict, um, will potentially become more severe, particularly as they're all interrelated. So it's uh, you know how do we um, how do we make ourselves resilient in the face of that you know in, in the face of those changes so that we're not surprised. Uh, not literally, because mm. there will be some things that surprise, but that those surprises aren't, you know, critical shocks or critical, you know, failures that cause us to not be able to to function anymore. I mean, that's a that's a great rundown, and uh, I like how you've. I mean, you connected all those things in terms of whether it be getting the most out of the moment, to all the way to sort of dealing with adversity, and and I don't know where I heard it, but one of the things that I I often say to the people is, you know, the boat is always leaking, right? There's, there's always going to be a problem. It could be a small problem. It could be a big problem. So just be comfortable and be at peace with the fact that there's, if there's a time when there's something that's not going wrong, like that's great. But they, the problem is around the corner and that shouldn't be a surprise and that shouldn't be a huge dislocation. You just accept the fact that, you know, things are generally going to go wrong. And as you said, life is not static. Yeah. Like is, life is very dynamic. Sorry, I think it, it, there was just one other thing that, I, that that occurred to me as well too was that I think the other and again this is with the benefit of having some time to think about it, but it's the idea. I can't remember who it was that said you know whether it was uh, one of the Roosevelts or or not, but the idea that you know things that are achieved too easily are valued too lightly, and there's something to be said for. Uh, you know, like I want to use the word suffering a little bit, but it, I don't know that it's the right word because I, I, I would hesitate to say that anything that I did on the forum was truly suffering compared to, you know, a lot of the circumstances that people find themselves in. But certainly I was uncomfortable at times. Those were often, you know, and whether that's like, you know, feeding the animals at minus 40 or something like that, or because they still need to be fed. <laughs> But often it's those long periods of discomfort working at something that really make you value, you know, something that you did at the end of it, something that you achieve. And my dad perhaps had more of those experiences because he literally rode a horse to school, <laughs> maybe not uphill both ways, but, um, you know, certainly had that hard work, but and achieved, you know, things that I think us today looking back at might say, wow, God, how did they do that? Uh, because it's so foreign to us, but I think you learn that value of you know sweating, you know, like an, an ounce of you know a pound of uh, sweat, or it's worth like an, it's better than an ounce of blood, kind of thing. Like, absolutely, the the value of hard work towards accomplishing something, I think, makes you really value when you do achieve something, uh, you know, as opposed to you know, well, I'm just going to go uh, down to the storm, just buy that, and you know, like your your skin in the game is not much in those types of circumstances, and I think there's something very, really valuable in, in that as well. So when you were growing up, was there a point at which you had a, a clear understanding or a clear sense of what you wanted to do after high school in the future? No, <laughs> I wish there was like, I wish I, my wife, uh, my wife knew that she wanted to be a teacher, specifically a French teacher. I think like as far back as when she was in grade three. And for me, it just wasn't, uh, that just, you know, I, I can't even, I don't even think I can pretend that I had a good idea about what I wanted to do. And it feels like, it feels, when I look back on it, it feels like I almost fell into different things. Um, 
because I don't, I don't think I had even considered a career in the military or even not even not necessarily a career by joining the military until close to, to close to graduating. And it was more like, for me, it was more joining the military was more a case of finding a way to pay for education. Um, and by the way, it looked like it was going to be <laughs> maybe not fun, but certainly some enjoyable things and some new things that I had never tried before. But yeah, I, do, I don't remember. I don't remember having like a firm idea. Like this is definitely wanna, what I want to do, um, or this is the particular field that I want to go in. That wasn't that wasn't something that I had. It was just uh, seeing what options I had, and then seeing which ones uh, I tended to enjoy or or I stuck with. Was there any examples uh, of service in your family? On my mother's side, um, there was quite a bit in terms of military service. So her her dad and a number of her uh, uncles and family members had all served in World War II. Um, yeah, my, my grandfather actually, actually had a story where he was captured by Rommel. Um, you know, we hear these, he was, a, he was a mechanic in North Africa or in Africa. And you hear these stories about Rommel and the uh, the Africa Corps roaring around so quickly and just doing random <laughs> random things and apparently so the story he told us goes is that Rommel's headquarters had basically was rolling around and captured this British um, I don't know if it was a convoy or anyways this unit and basically said you know hey we captured you but we have nobody to to watch you so stay here and then a, a you know a German unit will be here to to collect you shortly. And then took off because he was trying to command the, the entire battle in Africa. And of course, they didn't stay there. They left and uh, were able to return to the lines. But yeah, so there was a big history of military service anyways on my on my mom's side. On my, on my dad's side, um, definitely no military service. And in fact, I think that there was a negative attitude towards the military. Just a little bit, you know, I mentioned earlier about the uh, the experience in Russia and certainly the Russian army didn't have a great uh, great reputation um, for treating its people all that well um, and so there was a there was a, a little bit of I think not maybe I don't want to say outright distrust or a negative negativity but a, certainly not like a willingness to to go off and join the army and uh, uh, that that didn't exist on my dad's side. But there was um, a lot of community service from my, through my dad. So my dad was, you know, heavily invested in um, the Lions um, and, and other sorts of community organizations. There was a group called Pioneer Acres. Um, it was really dedicated to reminding people about what uh, you know what it was like. Uh, as a pioneer in the West. So he was involved in a lot of organizations like that. And I know my, my grandparents were really involved in their church and different types of community uh, events through there. So there was, you know, from a broader perspective, absolutely. There was a, there was a tradition of service there. Um, and then on my mom's side, you know, very clearly military service through, uh, through World War II. And what did your parents uh, think when you decided you were going to join the military? Yeah, my, um, so so <laughs> by way of context, my dad had wanted to join the RCMP and uh, his parents prevented him because he was a single boy and the expectation was that he was going to take over the farm. And uh, that always stuck with him. And I think he really made an effort to not say one way or the other for his kids what they did with their lives. So he didn't uh, – both of my parents were always very supportive in general about what, you know, any of the kids wanted to, wanted to do with their lives and what to pursue. So 
Um, so they were, you know, supportive of joining the military from that context. I know that, you know, from another context, they weren't thrilled about the idea. Uh, also, like I know, and, and this is, I think, a testament in my dad's case that, you know, he, that's not the, and he mentioned this to me, that it's not the career he would have picked for me. Um, because I think he had actually been in cadets, uh, from what I told, from what he told me and, uh, it wasn't like a great experience for him, but, uh, I know he told me it, w- it wouldn't have been the career that he would have picked for me, but he didn't, he never told me that until, you know, after I had joined and I had been enlisted for several years, um, you know, outwardly they were very supportive and, uh, and, you know, very, very much so. My mom was also very supportive as well too of it. I think it's the natural concern that people have when they're um, when there's their offspring or their loved ones join something like the military, especially if there's not a real tradition or familiarity with what the organization does or what's entailed. Because you know, certainly at that time as well, um, you know, tail end of the Cold War, and it wasn't so. You know, well, not when I joined, obviously, but uh, you know, when I was born, but. Um, you know, that frame of reference for militaries was still more, you know, like militaries fight and, and soldiers die. And, you know, that can be, you know, that's tough to then have your child go off and join that organization because obviously as a parent, you worry about the worst case scenario and that's, that's clearly one of them. Um, but yeah, outwardly, you know, my parents didn't communicate any of that stuff to me. Um, and we're just very supportive of, uh, of me joining. And what was your initial experience like in the in the military? What did the first few years look like for you? Yeah, it was really eye opening. <laughs> it was really a, it was a real shock for me. Um, I mean, part of me really enjoyed it because, well, I mean, as a you know as a eighteen nineteen year old, and I was in good shape, and I really enjoyed the physical challenge, and you know you know to be honest, like the it provided a lot of purpose for me, particularly, and I think I'm not so sure that that, that occurred during basic training. Uh, like basic training was uh, basic training was good. I enjoyed the the physical challenges, but I think, and it was really, I think it was really at RMC uh, that uh, you know I really started to see the value of military service and uh, you know the 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 military ethos and the values and the things that in an ideal world that we like the profession of arms to stand for and as a profession um i think you know certainly at rmc that would have been the first time that it would have been exposed to me that the military is not just it's not just a bunch of you know people putting on uniforms and 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 going off to battle or whatever it's actually it's a profession and a profession has standards um, and our profession in particular has unique circumstances that, uh, whether that's universality of service or unlimited liability. Um, and that I th- there was a number of aspects that really appealed to it. And, and I could say, you know, earlier on, I mentioned that I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my, uh, with my life after school. Uh, and, and I could say that, you know, when that realization came and I don't know when it was exactly, um, but certainly within those first couple of years, that provided me with purpose that, you know, to that point, I don't think I'd realized was really lacking in my life. Um, you know, and from that point on, I was really, you know, <laughs> what do you call us like a true believer or not? But yeah, I really believed, um, I really believed in the value of the profession and, and the, the, you know, what, 
what it offers society. And I still believe that. Um, I don't want to imply that I don't. I'm, you know, my views now are maybe more, slightly more nuanced um, in terms of where the military fits in in the broader scheme of things. But yeah, I think um, I really enjoyed my first few years in the military because it was a purpose that I had, didn't have before. That realization of a sense of purpose, did that come about organically or did you have mentors along the way um, in those early years at, at Royal Military College that whether by their example or actually by sort of directly having a, a conversation about the profession, the purpose um, that, that instilled that in you? How did that sort of come about? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I mean, certainly, certainly there's an education component to it, right? Which was the normal you know, the normal four pillars at RMC where that's a component of it in professional education. I certainly had a number of role models at RMC. Um, so one of them, you know, I was fortunate enough to be on the Sandhurst team at RMC, uh, or the military skills, uh, competition, um, which takes place at West Point where RMC sets, you know, sends a team to compete. One of the first, I, I think there was one year I was on the second and third, uh, maybe fourth uh, year that we competed in it as well. So the sergeant, we, there was a sergeant at RMC and when I was there, there weren't very many NCOs that were, that were at RMC. Um, so it was difficult to get that level of, you know, mentoring or, or role modelship. But we had a sergeant who was assigned to our team from the RCR, Ken Taylor, I believe his name was. And I think, you know, we didn't have a specific conversation in terms of like mentorship, but it was a very much learn, you know, by observing. And, you know, I would say he was a great role model because would show us, so, you know, some of the skill, some of the military skills, you know, he would obviously demonstrate for us, you know, like strip and, strip and assemble a C9. And I think, you know, that's where I started to see the value of practice, you know, like do it, do it again, do it again. How can I make it better? How can I get quicker? How can I uh, arrange the, the the parts and the components of the weapon system so that it's more natural to, to do it? And it's this idea, you know, of being uh, continuously trying to improve yourself at your craft and your trade. Um, you know, knowing, you know, perfect perfection is probably an unattainable goal. But how close can we get to it? Um, and those were certainly some of the things that I saw from, you know, from Sergeant Taylor is how can we how can we shave a couple of seconds off the, you know, the wall climb or um, what are the different things that we can do on our techniques to, to get better and constantly pushing ourselves to, to get better. Um, did we have uh, did we have, you know, like or did I have like an actual I don't know that I had an actual mentor you know, like someone who took me under their wing, um, you know, sort of, and sort of offered ongoing insights on it. You know, this is to, you know, post-Somalia time. So, you know, we were certainly, you know, absorbing some of the lessons uh, as they were being rolled out. But I, I don't think at that time, if I remember correctly, we didn't have a, a formal, you know, program to, or it hadn't formally been um, made its way through the curriculum yet. So it was more... Um, one-off instances. There were opportunities there for individual, you know, like individual or ad hoc mentorship, but not like a dedicated relationship with a person or a couple different people to, to, to guide me. I mean, later on in my career, um, I w I was able to have a little bit more of a formal or at least consistent mentoring. 
Um, and certainly, you know, my opportunity to work with, uh, with, with Mike Day in Cansofcom, you know, through a number of, through a number of years, um, was wonderful in terms of the men- the mentorship that he that he provided, and I, and I don't know you know in terms of his bandwidth how much um, you know much how much effort he devoted to it, but I do remember him you know I, I occasionally having chats about this in terms of you know division of time um, you know it, you know from his perspective the time that would be spent on his actual work versus you know time that would be set aside exactly for mentorship types of activities and not just on me but mm-hmm. on the you know on the group of individuals that he would have been mentoring or would have been guiding at certain points in their career and it was you know like a quarter of his time kind of thing spent on that one that one specific thing and it's very um you know i think humbling at that point to think yeah this you know that, i think that that might have been one of the not first exposures potentially, but ones that certainly stuck with me in terms of this is important as well. Um, guiding and shepherding the next generation of, um, you know, not, I don't want to say leaders, uh, but you know, the next generation of people who are going to follow in our footsteps and we can't expect them to, I, I think the goal that we all want to shoot for is that people who follow us are better than us. So I want to jump to, uh, you know, your time in, in the regular army and your time with 3VP and specifically, uh, you know, to talk through your, your time in, in Kandahar, uh, because I think that's a, probably a pretty important, important experience in your, uh, in your life. And, uh, and I'm not sure, especially as time marches on, I'm not sure how many people are, are still sort of aware of not only that mission broadly, but then the Tarnak Farms, uh, uh, specifically. Maybe give us a bit of a uh, a sense of of that mission and uh, and some of the events that unfolded in there. I'll start uh, maybe not quite at the beginning, but uh, because it's a yeah for me. Uh, so I mean, so I got to battalion when I got to battalion. This was in uh, summer of two thousand. Three uh, VP had just come back from from Bosnia and. Uh, on, on quite a, you know, quite a, this was a tail end of some of the peacekeeping, well, not the tail end because it continued to go for a while, but certainly the, the mid nineties peacekeeping tours had evolved to something a little bit more stable. Um, so at the time when I got to battalion, there was discussion about the light battalions being, well, I can't remember the exact word where there was rationalized or excuse me, or downsized, but, yep. and then, so there was a real, there was a real, expectation that the third battalion was um going to become not the third battalion anymore and what i mean by that i guess is there was a fair number of ex or former airborne soldiers that were in 3vp and there was a real commitment to you know dismounted infantry and uh this type of light infantry soldiering um that exists and i think there was a big fear that you know what people were being told was that that wasn't important or that wasn't uh you know that wasn't a priority and that it was going to go away and there was a real um yeah there was a real apprehension and, and tension and dissatisfaction i think with with some of that stuff so so on the one hand it was um it was a, it was not quite what i expected when i got to battalion you know we were doing exercises and I, you know, like two platoons per company and within each, you know, within each platoon, you'd have like 10 or 15 people or whatever. Um, (laughs) So you just, like we did a bridge demolition guard. um, I think in the first, uh, the first winter I was there, I had 12 people. 
and I could do, I couldn't even do all the tasks that were being assigned to me, even if everyone was up 24 seven. And it was, so it was, just, it was to the point and it's tough, you know, like being the, uh, you know, being the new, uh, the new officer there with, with guys that had been around for, for a while and had kind of, kind of seen, <laughs> seen a number of workup trainings and a number of different things going, you know, like what's, what are we doing here? Um, and trying to maintain positivity and in the face of people saying like, this isn't a real, like we have so few people that it's, there's really not even any point doing this. So that was, that was tough, but on the same time as well too, it was really, um, it was really rewarding, uh, to be in battalion and just actually do the business because the other thing we were able to do was just, uh, you know, just experiment and just, when we were on exercise, like, uh, you know, there wasn't a total tension of like, Hey, this is your one chance to do a platoon attack. So you better get it right. It was like, okay, nothing about this is standard. So let's figure, let's try it and see what works and do something, do something. So actually we had an opportunity to really experiment, um, you know, with making it work with small numbers. And yeah. was that something you took on yourself or was this something that no, the battalion just looked at and went, well, it's less than ideal, so it's a great time to experiment. Yeah, so I don't even think that that was a conscious uh, that was right. a conscious thing. It's like, hey, we're doing this uh, we're doing this workup training or this exercise or whatever, anyways. And it just happened to 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 turn out. I think that well, you know, there's no way we can do this by doctrine or by by normally. So let's mm. figure out the best that we can make of the situation. I mean, three VP was um, very can do in that in that respect. It was like, well, we can't that's not going to work. So what, what can we do that is going to work and then try to try to make that happen? When nine 11 happened, uh, I just got out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, when, you know, through one circumstance or another, we had gone to Austria on a partnership for peace exercise. It was supposed to be a bit of a, a good go, I guess, for me, um, having just come back off phase four, and then, you know, getting to know the people in my, in my platoon, um, Sergeant, Sergeant Lauren Ford, uh, took me under his wing, took me to some bars. Anyways, I wasn't able to control my drinking and ended up getting in a fight. Um, ended up getting, <laughs> getting arrested by, a by the Austrian police and resisting arrest and spending, uh, spending the weekend in jail. Um, got out of jail, I think on September 10th, 2001, and then was being sent home and nine 11 happened and then was stuck in Austria for a for a week while all the, all the airports were shut down. So yeah, the, the world stopped flying. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then when I got back to battalion, so I threw a roundabout way. I did, I had a detour through, uh, area headquarters while, um, while Colonel Stogren, who was our CO at the time and, you know, the brigade commander kind of figured out what, what the hell to do with me, but that obviously had bigger fish to fry considering nine 11 had just happened. So, um, definitely. Lieutenant left was not the top of the yeah, list. Yeah. No. Yeah. Definitely not a priority. So <laughs> that's totally fine. It was understandable. So I cooled my heels for, for a while. And then, um, when I got back to battalion though, it, it, it was actually really good. Um, and what it was good, I think was that I took a lot of, I took a lot of flack obviously for, for it. And, and it was great because <laughs> like the, the, uh, the, the section commanders were always, they were saying like, Oh, don't look out. He was going to give you a left and a right. And then there's tons of joking about it. But I think I do remember my platoon warrant at the time, uh, Kevin Tal, you know, kind of took me aside at one point and said, you know, like one of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons it's, it's good that you went through that experience is he's like, next time when you have a private or a corporal 
that's going to come up and got drunk over the weekend, you know, in the bar and, you know, has to, has to appear in court or whatever like that. He's like, you're going to know what that guy went through. So it's a, it's relatable to it, to a certain extent. And, uh, and that ended up being why it was good. I think was that it ended up being a way for me to, to actually relate with the people that I was working with, particularly in my platoon. And we had a great uh, rapport, I think, you know, certainly between myself, um, my platoon warrant, the three section commanders, the the weapons debt, and, you know, the people I work with, you know, on a more close basis. Um, not to say that that was with everybody in the platoon, but certainly the majority of people there, like we were really tight in a really close platoon. Um and part of that was the, you know, the uniqueness of the circumstance as well, working up for, for Op Apollo. Um, you know, the battalion went from, and we weren't going to be disbanded, I don't think, but we went from a circumstance where we thought we were going to be disbanded to all of a sudden we're going to Afghanistan. <laughs> and like, I don't want to look back with, you know, uh, the wrong impression or whatever, but certainly when Afghanistan kicked off, it was, it certainly was one of those moments in time where it was like you knew that the world was one thing up until a certain point in time and then an event happened and it was something different afterwards and none of us knew what we were getting into in afghanistan you know we'd heard about the taliban but you know did we think we were going to war i don't i don't know about that certainly we thought that you know it was far different from a peacekeeping mission and that there would be a chance that we would go off and get in combat and that some of us wouldn't come back absolutely we, we thought that and that created a real, what that did actually was create a real um, urgency to make sure that we were as, not as good, but as prepared for that situation as we could to the point, you know, like we determined that a few people weren't, uh, you know, weren't able, weren't gelling well with the platoon and we were able to, you know, move them somewhere else and replace them um, so that the group that we had were the people that we really wanted to go to war with. And that was really uh, empowering. It was really empowering to to be entrusted with those types of decisions about you know our own frame of reference, and, and that carried through right into you know the early days in Afghanistan. The uh, you know our first um, so there was a period there was a long period of waiting to go to Afghanistan. Like we were constantly. I think we drove to Edmonton Airport almost like t- uh, three times. I think to get on a plane, and we kept getting like bumped. Um, it lasted over Christmas, but when we finally got there, it was really surreal. It was really surreal. Um, just because there was nothing, you know, people, a lot of people who served in Kandahar airfield or in Kandahar in general, I guess later on will remember, you know, the boardwalk and, uh, you know, all the amenities that existed there in the sewage lagoon. But when we first showed up, like there was nothing we, we showed up and, uh, you know, we got off the plane and there was the, the old terminal that, that existed there. And that's, you know, there was a bunch of temporary huts that were sort of set up there where the, I think it would have been the, the Rakasans, I think, that were in charge then where they had their, like, yeah. kind of brigade headquarters. Um, and then we were led to, you know, some tents before we did our relief in place on the on the line. And then I think like the next day we did a, we did a recce of the lines and then we brought everybody out and did a relief in place with uh, like, it was like a transport platoon that was on the line. And, uh, and we didn't get like, like the handover wasn't as good as it necessarily could have been, but we were basically told like, here's the trenches or the, well, they were more like there were bunkers and then like everything forward of those bunkers has been mined. Uh, so stick to the track plan. And, uh, and then we were 
just stuck in these uh, stuck in these bunkers on the line. And then in the platoon admin area, like I mean, these were the these were the days like there were no even porta potties, so there were tubes in the ground, and and that's where he pissed. And then there was uh, there was uh, drums, the five gallon drums that were cut in half and filled with diesel and it had like a board put over them with a hole on it. And that's where you, uh, you know, that's where you, if you had to shit, that's where you, uh, that's where you went. And then, so we had the burning details and, you know, that was a routine thing. Everybody took part in, in all of that stuff. So it was a really good bonding experience. And three VP was really good in terms of, you know, everybody's in this all together kind of thing. It's the idea, you know, whether it's the idea that leaders eat last, um, or that everybody shares in the hardship, like that really what it was all about. Um, like, I mean, I took my turn on a, on a shit burning detail, no different than anybody else. Did I do it as often? Probably not. Like, <laughs> but we still took part in all that stuff and we shared, uh, we shared the hardships, uh, with everybody. The line, was this sort of an all around defense, like a ring or was your, yeah. was it face? It was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for, for listeners, I mean, Kandahar Airfield was, I don't know what, 50 kilometers east of Kandahar City, sort of just in the middle of a plane. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of right. like east, south, east, southeast, like yeah. along number four. So number four highway going down to Spin Baldock. It was, yeah, it was. Um, sort of sits between Kandahar City and the Pakistan border. 100%. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, it was just like, um, I think there was two battalions, if I'm not mistaken, when we first took the line, there was two battalions worth of, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly three VP was on the line. Um, I don't know what the other battalion was, whether it was an infantry, infantry battalion or not, but that was the defense and it was classic phase three infantry, uh, in the defense. We did morning and, you know, uh, stand twos at first light and the last light, you know, at, uh, once a week, we stood too while we cleaned the section weapons or the the platoon weapons. Um, it, very classic, and so to a certain extent. And I remember having that discussion. You know, on phase three, you're in the defense, and you're like, "Well, what am I ever going to use? Uh, what am I ever going to be in? Uh, you know, in the defense?" And then here we are, actually doing it. And we did defensive routine for about three weeks, three or four weeks. And it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it it's not the funnest thing to do, but. It was actually on the same hand. It was great <laughs> maintaining, you know, positivity. And, uh, you know, there was one, there was one night where we got a report that the Taliban had a BM 21. So, uh, a, a, you know, a Soviet era multiple rocket launcher with a range of like 21, 21 or 25 kilometers, I think. So this thing was evidently roaring around out there and all of a sudden backhoes showed up. And, you know, in addition to these bunkers, we had trenches being dug everywhere. And it was just like, yeah, I mean, there's a degree of, hey, this is realness to it. But at the same time, it's it's like, hey, this is, you know, this is actually our job. Like, let's uh, like this is this is for real. And it was really, uh, yeah, I mean, it was exciting. It was very, it was very exciting. And everybody had a really positive attitude as best we could toward towards it. So what is Tarnak Farms? So Tarnak Farms was literally, um, you know, it's just south of it's just south of where Kanahar Airfield is. And it was a built up area compound um, where previous to the, uh, you know, the invasion of Afghanistan where Al Qaeda had set up. And the the rumor was, is that Al Qaeda had set up like a a chem facility there or a a chemical facility there. I I don't think that that proved to be true or whatever, but certainly it had been, you know, a base of operations 
for al-Qaeda within Afghanistan as a training ground for, for training al-Qaeda fighters. Anyways, that had, um, you know, obviously every, the al-Qaeda and Taliban left, fled the area, and Tarnak Farms fell into the possession of, you know, the Allied um, force or, or Western forces. What it became was a training ground for us, really. And it was still, it was unclear. I don't want to say that it was mined, but certainly there was ordinance or it hadn't been cleared. So we had to assume that, you know, it was a potential danger area. So there were certain portions of it that once cleared became a training ground for us. Um, because, you know, even, you know, in your situation where you expect to be in combat, there's still value in, in training, right? Like whether it's sighting in your weapons or, um, one thing we weren't that short of was ammunition. Um, and so what we were able to do is actually play around with, uh, you know, things that we would have been difficult to do in Canada. So, um, section level attacks or section level fire missions on, you know, fairly rudimentary, uh, sites that were there, but still enabled us to go through, you know, coordinating the company level mortars, company level um, machine guns with our own platoon level stuff to actually go through synchronizing all that stuff, live fire though, and then doing like, you know, rudimentary uh, close quarter battles, but still going through our drills and being able to execute that. It was really, it was really good training. Um, and then of course, um, what Tarnak Farms, I think, has become known for. What had happened was, as things became more, um, not certain, but uh, more established within Afghanistan, so the airfield was protected, and I think it was very well, you know, after a month or, or two, it was pretty well established that there wasn't, there wasn't going to be any Taliban uh, assault on Kandahar Airfield. And this is post-op Medusa as well. Um there became a task in uh, eastern Afghanistan, so on coast. I think there was a special forces um, detachment that was operating out of a safe house in coast and needed basically um, some security for the base that they were operating in. So there was a company task that was um, that fell to our battalion to go in and provide uh, to go in and provide security for this special forces um, detachment, uh, an ODA. So our company was doing that, and as part of that, we, you know, were going through some additional training. Um, we had received night vision optics for um, for our anti armor weapons, so for the Carl G, uh, and also we had received Mark 19, so the so the grenade, uh, the the automatic grenade launcher, or the, the, we had the personnel one, so still like like a section or a squad weapon, okay, uh, as opposed to the vehicle mounted one, right. Um, so we were learning how to use that weapon because we'd never seen it before. Um, anyway, so we ended up at Tarnak Farms one night um, to do a night firing range. You know, with uh, you know, primarily it was I think to to work on our night optics with our any armor weapons, but we also were taking it as an opportunity to you know again just do some training with uh, with with the sections and the people. So what we had done that night, we was we had set it up. We did some night CQB. And then we had set it up so that each section commander was going to go through a platoon static range, but with the platoon weapons that attached. And it was really an opportunity for them to, you know, have some additional resources attached to them and, and see how they how they perform. Um, what had happened that night was because we had the Mark 19, uh, my 
platoon um, warrant stayed back in camp to brush up on the on the Mark 19 because he was going to be instructing a class the next day to everybody in terms of how how do we use this thing. So he, he stayed on camp, and so I went, and then it was the three section commanders. And, and Kevin, what he had told me kind of before we left was we'd had an issue doing ranges before where guys weren't um, restocking with the same amount of ammunition that they had on the range. So they'd come in with whatever their allocation was and they would take, they wouldn't bomb up to the same amount. So they'd be short a mag or something like that. Okay. When they went, when they went back to the, to calf, they'd be good. They'd be light. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. go out to, you go to the range and you fire off 10 mags and only take like eight worth or whatever okay. back or something. So you, I, <laughs> I know we'd have been having that problem and it sounds dumb, but these are the kind of real problems that, uh, that the platoons sometimes have. Right. So Kevin, before we left, uh, the last thing he said to me, I think was, uh, he's like, sir, uh, make sure he's like, make sure those sections get their ammo and are rebombed and come back with everything they're supposed to have. So I'm like, okay, that, that's fine. I'm like, I got it. This is easy. So we went and we did our, we did our ranges, our, our CQB, um, lanes that we did. And then we had moved into this section range and we had one section. It was, so mine was the second platoon to go. So it was, uh, it would have been nine serials. The first platoon ran through its three serials. Then it was my platoon. We did one serial and then I walked out with the, the, you know, the section to the firing line, which is in a wadi on the edge of a wadi. And then we walked back to the admin area to get the second section to walk up. Um, and instead of walking back out to the firing line with the second section, I stayed in the admin area to make sure that the, you know, the first section that had just fired got all their ammunition and were being, uh, you know, fully, fully restocked with what they needed. And in the interim, while I was doing that, you know, with the CQ, obviously, um, I missed the second, uh, you know, the second section that had gone up and because it was nighttime or a live fire range, I'm like, I'm not going to walk up on them in the middle of the night. Um, I'll walk off to the side of the, you know, I'm going to walk off to the side of the range and, you know, if if everything's fine there, I'll kind of link up with them there, but I'm not, I'm not just going to come up with them, you know, while they've already gone off and they're shooting. Um, and so, um, when I did that, I walked off, you know, for a little bit and then, uh, you know, maybe, I guess it would have been like maybe a hundred, uh, hundred, maybe 150, maybe two, a hundred, 150 meters or so away from where they were. I ended up meeting like one of our pioneers who was, a, who was attached to us. And we were just having a, you know, like a, just a range conversation. <laughs> it was a really nice night. It was really, it was April. So it wasn't super, like it wasn't super hot. Like we know Afghanistan in the summer gets, uh, you know, brutally hot or whatever like that. But it was just a really, it was just a really nice night. Um, and we were just, you know, shooting the breeze or whatever like that. And uh, I, I think we had just kind of finished our conversation and I was kind of getting ready to move up and see where the firing was going on. And that's when we saw this, you know, fireball on the on the firing line where the where the where the guys have been shooting and you remember like my initial thoughts were just really confusion um because it didn't make any sense it didn't make any sense why you know what that was or what could have caused this uh this massive explosion that was on, on the firing line you know it was uh like I, I i don't know i don't even i don't think it it didn't occur to me i know the the one of the gunners on the Carl G told me afterwards that his immediate thought was that they'd had a misfire and that the misfire had exploded and, and that's what it was. And, and that thought never occurred to me. Uh, 
And I don't know if it's just because I didn't assume that that was a possibility or not. It was just super, it was just very foreign mm-hmm. and it was just not, I couldn't even place it or figure out what it was. And I think after, you know, me and the pioneer that I've been talking to, we both kind of dropped to the ground or whatever like that. And then we stayed there for a bit and we're sort of like processing what had, what had happened. And then, you know, and then obviously you started to hear the, hear the cries and, uh, like the shouts and stuff like that. And then, you know, I just ran, ran to the location where everybody was. And it's just utter chaos kind of thing. Um, in, in terms of, <laughs> in, in terms of what we, in terms of what we found, obviously, like, uh, the results of dropping a, a 500 pound bomb on a, on a section and a, and the weapons that are, are, are about probably what you would expect. Um, but if anything, you know, the kill radius on that bomb is much bigger. Like the admin area of the company was within the kill radius, not the kill radius, but certainly the danger area of that bomb. And I think there was only a couple guys that ended up catching shrapnel back in, in the admin area, just because in a respect, fortunately the bomb hit on the side of the wadi and a lot of the blast was either generated forward um, away or down into the, into the wadi itself. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, clearly super traumatic, but with the potential to be a lot, uh, to be a lot worse. And then, uh, yeah. And, and so then it really just, you know, kind of became, you know, responding to the, uh, responding to the, to the, to the tragedy in terms of trying to figure out, do we, where is everybody? Do we have everybody? Um, and who can we, who can we help and who can we get out? How many times did you go back, uh, to Afghanistan after that initial Apollo mission. So I served uh, four more tours in Afghanistan after that. And then a number of, uh, so I, that was the, after that tour in 2001, then I joined Cansofcom um, uh, and my, my tours after that were with Cansofcom. Not all of them were six months. Like I had a, you know, a, a three month tour and a, and a five month tour or whatever in there. And then I had a number of smaller, um, let's call them like, uh, security visits, like, you know, for a week or two weeks or whatever like that, mm-hmm. just for really small, um, small instances, like doing close protection for a, for a VIP type of thing. Um, but yeah, so I, I still deployed like four more times to Afghanistan after that. How did those, did each one of those missions build off each other in terms of your, your view of whether it be, you know, violence and conflict writ large, whether it be, um, you know, Afghanistan itself. I mean, how, how did your, your thinking, uh, progress? You've got a pretty learned lens, uh, on what we did in Afghanistan. So like, how did it, how did it evolve? Did it evolve and how did that inform, you know, your future? Yeah. I mean, it definitely, <laughs> wow, that's a great, uh, I mean, we can almost talk, we almost talked this whole thing just on that, right? Like, the so so it did evolve. There's a number of um, factors. It's important to you know call out, though at the same time too. Um, when I went back in 2005, it was so you know we know that after 2001 and 2002, the initial assault, things kind of there was like this false sort of like security time where it was like. Um, the Oslo Accords happened and Karzai's government was in power and it was generally 
tracking along sort of well. We had the mission in Kabul, which Canada wasn't a part of initially. But we know now, we, we know, and some people knew at the time too, that it wasn't really all <laughs> all that good, right? So when we went back in 2005, um, there was, you know, what we were being told was that it was, that you know, that's the first time I've heard of a, I'd heard of an insurgency. So, and counterinsurgency, that's what the, the special forces, uh, the American special forces guys were telling us on the ground. There's this uh, insurgency going on, you know, especially in the South. Kabul was a little bit more, uh, more stable, which was where the predominance of Western forces were. There was really no, there was really no development of Afghan forces at that time. Um, when I was there in 2006, uh, in Kandahar, that was the weird, uh, that was the weird rotation, uh, Colonel Hopes. And I don't mean weird, but I mean, in the sense that at the start of that rotation, they were driving around in G wagons and, you know, uh, waving to people and handing out water bottles. And by the end of that rotation, they were getting bombed in, uh, in Panjaway. And, you know, Panjaway was basically a hardened military defensive area. And, you know, that obviously didn't happen just in six in six yeah. months, but it was starkly evident, you know, from that period. And even it was it was surreal in 2006 when we were there, you know, based at an operating base uh, closer to Kandahar City that we were legitimately talking about the Taliban assaulting Kandahar City and whether or not, you know, <laughs> our fathers were defensible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was very surreal. And then, um, you know, when I went back in 2008, that was, uh, the, the surge I think had just, uh, the surge had not quite happened. If I'm not mistaken, it was just after that, that it was authorized, but certainly, um, you know, we had Canada had gone in with a lot heavier forces where so the tanks were on the ground, but we, we were taking heavy IED casualties uh, during that time, so that was different. That was different again. And then in 2011, when I was there, that's when the Canadian combat mission was standing down. The surge was happening, and it was dynamically. It was a lot different um, in terms of focus, and you know, General Petraeus was controlling the map uh, in terms of synchronizing all forces. I mean, not personally, but obviously, you know, there. One of the evolutions I think that I saw was at the start, it was sort of like every country, <laughs> every country for themselves kind of thing. You know, Canada had our, ended up having RAO and, and although the Brits, you know, we didn't, the UK, we didn't work with them close. They weren't involved in Hillman at that time, but certainly a lot of the national contingents had like, Hey, this is our, this is our campaign plan for wherever our geographic location. And this is what we're going to accomplish. And it wasn't necessarily synced with, you know, someone else working in potentially the same space and uh, people working in the same space weren't necessarily synced. And and I know, you know, that one of the dynamics between soft and the conventional force was that it often, you know, weren't synced efforts. It was actions that were happening and not necessarily, I don't know, coordinated at best. It was sort of like deconflicted. Um, and that, and that progressed, you know, that steadily progressed till by the end in 2011, when I was there, it was pretty, it, it was not harmonized, let's say, but everyone did seem to be working towards a common goal. Um, there was clearly, you know, the area commanders were, <laughs> were in charge of, uh, well, sorry, not the area, but the division commanders, you know, in charge of RC South, they were in charge of what was going on there. 
and everything had to sync uh, with it, you know, to the, and uh, even within the Canadian effort, um, we were very much more aligned with, uh, with the joint task force headquarters. It was there. Like I know uh, I was essentially as the soft task force commander, I was essentially general Milner's, uh, soft advisor at the same time that I was, uh, you know, the task force commander for, for Canadian soft in it. So making sure that our efforts reinforced higher commander's intent and, you know, and above, above that. And then also that it was harmonized with what the soft intent was overall, but you know, by then, the writing was kind of on the wall. I think, I think we, you know, the surge already had an end date and I think it was widely, it was widely known or at least discussed that, uh, you know, the, ta- the, the Taliban were effectively kind of slow rolling, uh, you know, essentially waiting, waiting out Western forces because the, you know, some of the dates of drawdowns had already been announced. I mean, we, we were drawing down. Yeah. So you, you see this kind of like, well, really, I mean, let's call it what it is, incoherence at the start of it. Um, in terms of a bunch of organizations doing their own thing in the battle space. And uh, and not to say that it's not just the military too, but being asked to do things that aren't typically within the sphere of the military, right? Like between aid organizations and governance. I mean, we had the, uh, the, uh, the, t- the team supporting the, the government in Kabul, but... The SAT. The SAT, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Strategic advice. Strategic advisor. Strategic advisor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, incredibly complex, uh, incredibly complex space. Like there's no like single easy reason why it, you know, why it fell apart. But if there was, you know, we would have, we would have fixed it. Right. But um, like, there's a lot of reasons why it, it came apart, but you know, this incoherence at the start though, to something that did make sense at the end, but by then we kind of lost, uh, you know, certainly lost some of the the narrative a little bit in terms of what was going on. When was the writing on the wall for you to say that, you know, I need to do something differently still in the military, but yeah. Um, I mean, something like that doesn't happen overnight. So there's a few, there's a few things that kind of, um, the scale of me deciding to, to do something differently and they all ended up being like little, uh, pebbles on that scale, weighing it, weighing it down. Right. Uh, part of it was definitely my last, you know, the, my tour when I was there as a task force commander, um, Provided a bit of that because you start to see some of the inconsistencies in the in the strategy, right? Like our means of you know our, our processing of DTMEs. So you know, and and this is you know essentially just Kill Cullen's idea of the accidental gorilla kind of thing, right? Where we pick up you know we pick up people on a on a raid with good intelligence. Um, and we detain them and they enter the Afghan detention system, you know, through our, like, <coughs> excuse me, through our appropriate transfer mechanisms and, and, and they end up in the detention system and then become radicalized in the detention system and come out and, uh, and then also, so not only are we potentially creating, uh, more people through that, but then also, you know, the, the the people from a tribal perspective who are annoyed at us um, and annoyed probably isn't the strongest word to use there, but you know, who, but basically now have a beef with us as well. So we had an instance, uh, we had an instance on my tour where, um, oh God, what was the prison outside of Kandahar City? Anyway, so the, so this prison, which is outside Kandahar yeah. City, they had a classic prison break. They, yeah. The Taliban dug a tunnel underneath the prison and thousands of detained people escaped. <laughs> so we were for like a week after that, we were doing operations to, you know, to try to round up these prisoners. 
And, uh, and we got some intelligence, uh, we got some intelligence on a, on a compound just south of, uh, Canada city. And, you know, we rolled up and, uh, had what we thought was a good interaction with the, the people. And then, um, the battle space owner were like, yeah, these, these guys are definitely uh, not from, not from around here anyway. So we, we removed some people that we, th- we thought were detainees. And then, you know, the next day the, uh, the elders were super upset with us. Um, and it was just, it was very, it was very much like, that was a, that was a, that was a question where I'm like, maybe we're creating more harm than good here. <laughs> like, I don't know that we're actually making things better anymore. And, and we were a hundred percent well-intentioned. Like there was nothing, um, the intelligence was sound. We had multiple points of, uh, you know, of corroborating, uh, intelligence from multiple different sources. Um, but then you, I mean, there's all these other things that play into it, right? Like the, the, the battle space owner and their understanding of people that were going on, uh, potentially, you know, the motivations of some of those intelligence sources and whether there was like a tribal rivalry or, or, or whatnot. But, so, but, so that's, that was one incident. And if, and there was a few things on that, uh, on that tour that kind of ca- caused me to, to think, you know, like, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> like, what, are we, what are we doing? So what, someone else had said to me, you know, before I went and I, and I think it was meant in a, in a, you know, a sort of like well-intentioned advice, you know, that nothing that we did in Afghanistan was worth the life of a, of a single Canadian soldier kind of thing. And it was sort of like, well, what, <laughs> you know, what are we doing there then? Like, that's our job. Hmm. That's our job to be there. And, you know, obviously I'm not going to make decisions to put people into situations where, you know, a cavalier idea towards a risk, but there's a, you know, we do our best to mitigate risk, but that's part of our job. And we're also fighting a, a thinking, a competent adversary there. I mean, if any of us think that the Taliban didn't know their, their business, like you're, we're not giving credit to people who live their whole life fighting. Yeah. So they didn't have many of the advantages we did, but uh, they still did pretty well for themselves, you know? So if you're not giving them credit for that, then, then that's a mistake, but it's like, well, what are we doing here? So those were a couple, you know, a couple of the pebbles. Uh, shortly after I came back, I went to JCSP, uh, so the Joint Command and Staff Program in Toronto, and I just remember that being very frustrating. It's like a year-long master's year long. program yeah, sort of thing. that's right. Yeah. I just remember it being very not as advertised, <laughs> not as advertised. <laughs> um, so right from like an administrative perspective, um, we made a, you know, we had looked into moving my family, and by this time... Uh, by JCSP, I had a daughter, you know, um, one, she, she was born like basically a month after I came back from, from my rotation, my, from my tour in Afghanistan. So we had looked into moving to Toronto together and it just, everything was set up that, uh, that going, me going separately, like on, uh, imposed restrictions was the way to do it. And I remember my wife talking about it. She's like, well, um, she's like, I, she's like, I thought that people were the priority, you know? She's like, so how is it that the departmental policy is really driving us to, to set up to a situation where we can't be together? Um, and I didn't have an answer for it. So that started to tune me into some of the say-do gap that, that exists, you know, especially on, you know, some of the, the people side of things within, within the department. And then, uh, you know, some of the things that we studied on the course, too, were just not, you know, I just come from, you know, almost what, eight years of, you know, <laughs> being very operationally driven. And my time was at a premium. 
and I felt like it, well, my time wasn't being used properly in Toronto. Um, because we were, you know, we would, uh, you know, we would do things that we either already knew or, and then, you know, I didn't have the best attitude uh, either. Like I have to, you know, be totally, totally fair on that. Like I didn't, the last thing I wanted to kind of do was I wanted to do my business and get back to my family. I didn't want to be going to the mess on a, on a Thursday night or, you know, uh, like I just wanted to do my, get my work done and, and take care of business and then get, get back to my life because I hadn't had much of one. Um, and I didn't feel like that perspective was, uh, reciprocated at, at Toronto. Um, and also a lot of the people didn't, uh, I don't think had current experience. Like I remember we were doing a module on targeting and it ended up being me and a Marine officer that led the syndicate. We led the module on targeting because I had been, I had actually completed strategic targeting. Like I'd, I'd been doing that since I was, uh, almost a captain in 2005, like, uh, contributing to, uh, strategic targeting decisions. And then as a task force commander, I was advising the, the, uh, the JTF commander in terms of targets that we were going to be prosecuting. So I was pretty well familiar with it, although, right, you know, with no formal training, but I was, you know, kind of underwhelmed with some of the, some of the things that we were talking about also. So I kind of walked away from that a bit, a bit sour. And then, um, and then I was, a uh, I was, a. Uh, in chief of force development, I was the uh, chief of force development's staff officer or executive assistant, assistant, kind of doing both things. And that was, on the one hand, a wonderful mentorship opportunity because I was able to sit in now on a bunch of on a bunch of institutional processes that were going on. So, you know, how does the Canadian military as a whole identify capabilities that we think we need, and then prioritize certain ones and how does the dynamic work with some of these senior governance committees? So I was able to see some of that stuff. Which is very much seen in the, in the military, in succession planning as, as a very good job, a stepping stone to further promotions, better appointments, because you get that exposure and you have that sort of, that close relationship with one of these senior leaders. Yeah. So it's very much a sort of a chapeau to your future. Yeah. And that was the plan. That was absolutely hundred percent the plan. And it was very, it was very good. And, um, and I'm super thankful for, you know, for, for those opportunities that I saw a lot in, and, and, and Mike Day, who was CFD for the majority of my time there, you know, bent over backwards to bring me in and mentor me on some of that stuff. And I, you know, I hate to say it too, but at the same time, it, it's almost like it seeing how things work though was also a little underwhelming because <laughs> I think I had this idea, you know, that, you know, you're going to go up one level and it was all going to make sense, you know, like, and we tell people that right in battalion as a platoon commander, Hey, I get it. You don't, you don't, it doesn't make sense, but don't worry. The battalion understands what's going on. And then you get to battalion level and they're like, don't worry. The brigade has a plan. And you keep working your way up and you keep expecting, well, at the strategic level, they know what's going on. And then you see it and it's like, uh, hey, this is a multi-year uh, capability we're trying to procure here. And and this guy just submarined it after like seeing the issue for, for an afternoon or something like that. And you're like, is that really how we make decisions here? Um, so... so <laughs> So on the one hand, there was like exposure to like really good, really good, fascinating stuff. And then you see the normal things, you know, like in NDHQ where, you know, the tumbleweeds are rolling through the, through the cubicles at two o'clock in the afternoon kind of thing. It's like, I don't know that we're all, uh, I don't know that we're all in it to win it here. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah. And it's like, and that's, and, and that's fine. Everyone's in a different point in their life. Um, but the cumulative effect of that was that all these things were like little rocks in my shoe and they started to add up and I started to become, and other minor irritances that, that were in this as well, like the commute, uh, the, the commute to, to downtown or to start top and sitting in traffic for an hour a day where you just like think about this, think about this stuff. And it just started to add up and, uh, like I didn't realize it, but I was starting to become very angry. Um, like I'd lose my, I'd lose my temper, uh, you know, often and not like in, in inappropriate ways or whatever like that. But I remember coming one home and I was just like, I, I got home and I was like complaining about the commute home because I've been stuck in traffic and my wife's like, stop. <laughs> She's like, there's something going on with you and you need to sort it out. Um, because this is no attitude. Like we, this is no attitude for us to, to go forward with. Like you have a, there's an issue that's making you angry and you've got to, you got to deal with it. That coincided, you know, through happenstance with my wife being second or pregnant with our second child. And throughout that pregnancy, um, my, my, not, I guess not my boss, but, uh, the, the chief of staff at chief of force development, uh, Dan Bouchard had said, you know, like you need to go on parental leave. Just like take it. It's a good opportunity because there's nothing, there's nothing at CFT, you know, that, you know, you can take it. It's a good opportunity to do it. And I really militated against that because I just was super foreign to me. The idea that I would go off for six or seven months and, uh, with my child, like I just couldn't, I couldn't grasp it. Uh, but when I was sort of confronted with this with my wife, then I was, I was like, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Cause I think, I think that there's something that's going, that's going on here and I need to kind of take a moment and, and consolidate, I guess, if I can use a military term for it and figure out what's going on. So I did, I did take it. And then, yeah, that ended up just being like a transformative, uh, a transformative event in my life. Because really for seven, she was off as well. So it was just, you know, the four of us off for a little bit. And um, I actually made an effort to really take stock of where I was in life. And and we came up with like this really good schedule. Um, so we weren't working all the time, like between two kids, like between two adults. I mean, if you're willing to share responsibilities and stuff like that, you can still balance things. And they were both pretty young. So we had some time to ourselves and... Um, yeah, like one of the things I discovered was that I didn't know what to do with myself. Like, <laughs> like I didn't have any hobbies. Like there was stuff that I did now and then, like I'd been in, like I was doing triathlon, but that was sort of self-serving anyways, because we're supposed to be fit and in shape. And yep. so it wasn't like, I didn't want to say it was a hobby because I wasn't necessarily passionate about it. It wasn't something that I did just for me. It was something that I did to be in shape and, um, like it was interesting and, and don't get me wrong. Like it was fun too, but but it wasn't really distinct from the profession. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't distinct from the profession. Hundred percent. Right? Yeah. So that's when that's when I decided to take to start creative writing. Um, which was I don't know what it was about writing specifically, but uh, my wife's family is very uh, is very artistic and creative. Uh, she has a number of singers in her family, like professional musicians and. Uh, her dad writes poetry, et cetera. So I don't oh, know okay. if, if, you know, if that guided me or whatever. Anyways, I, I took a, you know, I took a course through Algonquin College, a distance learning course on, you know, basics of creative writing kind of thing. And I started to get into it and like, I started to enjoy it. Um, what was your degree, your undergrad degree in? Um, so my degree was in politics and economics. It was uh, back when I did my degree, it was a split one because neither department was really big enough to, to offer their own distinct okay. one. 
So it was a, a bachelor's in politics and economics. So yeah. this is your first real exposure to like proper creative writing. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. And, and you know, on top of that, I'd done, you know, like I, by this point I had a master's in defense studies and, uh, and in public administration, but all very academic stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so creative writing now, like a very different, a very different beast. Um, and so then I, I got started to get into it and, uh, started to enjoy it. And then just one thing, um, this would have been kind of October ish or whatever I started with it. And then November, November is national novel writing month, which is a challenge to write 50,000 words, a novel, you know, you could use quotation marks around novel or is really to write a story, which is 50,000 words long. Um, and it seemed like a good, you know, thing to try. Um, I was all about, you know, like taking on hard things. I remember I could totally do this. <laughs> so like I did it, um, you know, like I had the, through working on this creative writing course, I had the seed of an idea that had struck me as interesting. And, um, then it ended up being like the basis of, uh, the basis of what I wrote for national novel writing month. And then I, and then that was sort of the first in a series of milestones that happened to me where I was like, I, I, I finished one thing and it's like, okay, well, what do I do now? So I made it to the end of, uh, I made it to the end of national novel writing month. I had a, you know, 50,000 ish, uh, story, which was horrible. It's like really terrible. But then it's like, well, what do I do with it now? I can either, you know, put it away or, you know, work on it and try to make it better. And so that's what I did. I edited a few more and I took a few more courses, obviously, and try to figure out, Hey, you know, it started to become really obvious to me that I didn't know what, what I was doing. Uh, so anyways, for the, for basically that, for the rep, by the end of my, by the end of my parental leave, I guess, and when it was time to go back to work, um, I'd really kind of transform myself in term, terms of like, Hey, like I really enjoy writing and telling stories and there's a lot that I don't know about it. Um, and I, and I had, you know, the basis of a book that I thought, you know, I could do something with. Um, and then I went back to work and, uh, you know, pretty, I think the, the plan for me going back to work was I had a three week, uh, three week or a month that I needed to finish up at CFD. And while I was doing that, I was going to be doing a handover for, with my next position, which was to, to be the, the J3 or, or the director of operations at Cansofcom headquarters. So I did, I did that. I did my handover. I took over as, as J3. And even at that point I was still like, I'd, I'd known that, uh, things were, had changed for me. But I still had an idea that, um, you know, I could do this job. And then exactly as you said, you know, with the, the SO job leading into a J3 job, like that's setting me on a certain, a certain trajectory that would, you know, see me be, uh, you know, going to future high profile positions. And I think it was like a week after I was at J3, I just woke up one day and I'm like, I can't, <laughs> I can't do, I can't do this anymore. Like, I just didn't have the drive to, uh, like. Happened that quickly. Uh, when the tipping point finally came, it was pretty quick. It was pretty quick. I just like, I can't, I can't imagine doing this for, you know, the next five years. I can't imagine, um, you know, at that point I was well back into the routine. It's a, it's a, you know, that's clearly a high profile in a high demand job. You know, I was leaving before everyone was up in the morning and kind of getting back as my daughters were going bed to bed. So it was almost, it was kind of like being deployed in Canada because I didn't really see my family ever. Um, and you know, I, I didn't have it the worst either. Like there's other people who are working harder than me, but at the same time too, I'm like, I just, uh, 
is this worth the sacrifice that I'm making right now? Because, you know, at that time, you know, at the time, one of the things that we were dealing with when I was the J3 was the, uh, um, ISIS in Iraq and Iraq had fallen, right? And Mm -hmm. Syria had fallen and we were supporting uh, the Kurds on the line. And it was kind of like, and then you start to, um, you start to pull on the threads and you're like, holy shit. Like we kind of, not we as in you and me, but we kind of created this in a way. Um, So is that what it's going to be like? Is that what it's going to be like for the next five years? Like I'm going to be, or the next 10 or however many years it's going to be like, I'm going to do something and create a mess that I'm going to have to go in and, and sort out, you know, five or 10 years later, because we didn't take a moment to think through the, the long-term consequences of our actions. And it was just kind of like, um, and what's the skin in the game for us back here, really? Because at that point, you know, there was a lot of national support for Afghanistan when we were in it. I don't think that was the case. You know, do how many people even know that we have forces in Iraq right now? Um, I'd say a f- far fewer than, you know, we're tracking the, the Afghanistan mission. Yeah, and is absolutely. That, and is that, you know, do I want to know my family through pictures attached to emails for this? And I couldn't come up with, you know, I couldn't come up with a, a really solid answer that let me look at myself in the mirror and go like, this is totally worth it. Um, and, and so that led me to, I'm like, I got to do, I got to, I got to do something. I got to do something different. Um, and so, you know, that's when I, you know, signaled, signaled to my, uh, you know, the, the folks managing my career that I needed to have a different path and, uh, where I'd have, you know, some time to kind of figure stuff out for myself and go on a, on a different journey. So, and then kind of spent a year sort of figuring that out and then was able to do that. Now, I'm, I'm conscious of time cause I know you're gonna have to go pick up your daughter, but I, I do want to, um, I do want to talk a little bit about the spark uh, you've written a couple of books though before the spark that are fiction, mm-hmm. but the spark's really not. No, no, the spark is totally nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, wh- how did that come into being, and, and why did you feel that you're dedicating that chunk of your bandwidth to the spark uh, was was important? Well, I didn't want to write it. Um, so after I wrote my after I wrote my first novel. Um, and I think after I gave my, my first TED talk, I was approached by a friend that I work with um, in Cansoffcom. And, you know, he's kind of like, he pitched me on the idea of collaboratively writing a leadership book. And I wasn't, I wasn't really that interested. I was real, really tepid on the idea because I just think that one, there's a lot of, it's a crowded space in terms of military people writing leadership books. Um, and, you know, and also soft people writing soft leadership books or whatever like that. And, and also I do, I don't, I didn't think, I didn't think that I had anything new to offer on that one. Uh, so I was really tepid on it, but I agreed because he was a friend. I agreed to kind of sound out the idea and just kind of work with, uh, work with him on it. And through a period of um, discussion, we came up with a different question, which was a lot more interesting to me. And so we were talking one day we were talking and, uh, the, I can't remember which one of us asked it, but the idea that came up was like, if you knew that you weren't going to have a chance to talk to your kids about what it meant to be a good citizen, what would you, um, what would you tell them? You know, say you had to say you were able to write a letter to them. What would you tell them in that letter about what it means to be a good citizen? 
you know, knowing that you would never have a chance to, to tell them again. Uh, and then that's, that was of interest to me uh, through a number of different things. Like, it's cliche to say it, but having kids does change your uh, perspective a little bit, right? Because now that's a factor when I make decisions. It's how, how do I put things in place for them? How do I help make them be better than the person I am or was? Um, because they, you know, they might be interacting with a world that's more, more challenging than us. How do I, how do I make sure that they're prepared for it? So that was more interesting. So we, we sounded that out. Um, and we had like a really rough template for it. And some of the template was, was no good. Uh, like I had this initial idea, what we wanted to do was make it like, you know, in a Kung Fu movie where, where someone shows up at the, the master's place and they're like, I want to train. And then the master's like, go away. You're not good enough. And then there's this period of yeah. where they have to kind of make their, you know, like show that they're good enough. Prove for they're it. worthy. Yeah. We wanted to do the, the literary equivalent of doing that. Um, and I don't, I mean, it could work, but I, I it's, I don't, I don't know that it was right anyway. So, uh, and then like this ended up being like a really long period and my friend, you know, sort of, um, writing a book is tough. It takes a long time to do it. And my, you know, my friend had other stuff that he needed to focus on. So we kind of separated and went our own ways on the, on the book and not in a, you know, a contentious way by any means, but just because, you know, we, you know, life got in the way and I kept sort of chipping away at it because I couldn't let it go. It was one of those things like having started something now, I can't, you know, I got to, a, so it was this exact same thing with my other books. I got to a certain point, I got to a first draft. I'm like, what do I do with it now? I'm like, I can put it away. And it just felt like a big shame to put all this work away. So I'm like, well, I'll, I'll edit it again and I'll see if I can get further with it. And I kept taking it further and further. Um, and then I, I eventually got to a point where I didn't know enough on my own on what I could do next. So I got with an editor and, uh, and then the editor, one of the things that the editor told me was, so by this time it had morphed. Well, it was a citizenship book. Um, and and the, the premise of it was roughly similar to what it is right now. Society's facing a number of challenges. The answer to that is civic engagement and people, you know, committing to service to others or putting others ahead of themselves and, and the greater good. And she's like, well, you've identified a number of different challenges that are here. And she's like, but not in great amount of detail. And she's like, you can either focus in on, you know, exploring that or dial in on one specific challenge. And, and, you know, and she said, climate comes up a lot in it. And she said, that is certainly something that's happening. So either approach is good, like focus in on one specific one, such as, you know, how civic participation could help society become more resilient for climate change or for things in general. And, uh, and so we, I chose to go with the climate portion, you know, probably because it's frankly easier because uh, there's a lot of research out there and it seemed, you know, a bit of laziness on my part, but it seemed like the easier thing to do from a writer's perspective was to make that argument. Um, and then, so then I was able to get the spark to where it is, well, close to where it is right now. But like a funny thing happened while I was writing it because we were... Initially, so initially, you know, we had this book, which was for this nebulous audience of, you know, military like people. And then that was, we threw that away pretty quickly. And then it was like, okay, well, it's for, it's for young adults, really. It's like, not my daughters now, because they're a little too young for the content. But, you know, when they're, they're teenagers, or, you know, they're in high school, and, and potentially early university, this is, this is the right place for them. And some of the content is really tough, but I don't, 
and like I say this a number of times, and we're not going to pull any punches. And I think people can handle harsh realities if it's done in a respectful, sensitive way, because that's how the world works. Um, but the funny thing that happened was that at some point, the audience narrowed down to me. <laughs> it ended up to being about me. Um, and, and so I, in this weird circumstance where I'm writing on my own experience, but it ends up being this like kind of ongoing muse, I guess, with myself about what it means to be a good, a good citizen. Um, and that doesn't mean that, the, you know, the other audience, you know, being for my kids is not relevant or not, but it does, it does add a, a dynamic that I hadn't thought of before. And I think it explains a little bit. I've had a lot of like feedback from, you know, people with similar backgrounds, to me, you know, like people I've served with, who's, you know, have said that they really appreciate it. I have one guy write that it's almost like a voice that he wished he could be able to, he's like, I wish he's like, this is our voice. He's like, I wish I could be able to, he's like, you're saying stuff that all of us are thinking. And that wasn't my intent, but I think in the process of kind of like the audience coming on me, that that may have been something that came out in the wash. I guess it's one of those fortuitous, lucky circumstances that happen, which you, you can't even really plan for. It's, something that happens and you just, you know, if that's the case, I could be wrong. But <laughs> Al, this has been a, this has been a great conversation and uh, I'm going to ask you the last question. Now I ask everyone, if you have a recommendation to the listener that will either educate, entertain, or, or elevate a cause that uh, that's important to you. I, I think what I would do and, and no surprise here as an author that I'm going to recommend a book, but um, Catherine Hayhoe, um, is a climate scientist and she wrote a book called saving us. And it's a really fascinating, it's a really fascinating viewpoint. It uh, and it ties into some of the things that we've been talking about in terms of service, you know, how service may involve just having a conversation with somebody. Um, and she has, you know, a lot of great insights as a, as a climate scientist is at the forefront of, you know, uh, denialism and, and skepticism a lot of which is not respectful or civil. Um, and so, she, you know, she has a lot of experience kind of interacting this space um, and also with people with motivated reasoning and has a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of insight in terms of how something can be meaningful for you and, and, and push it and just how, you know, like having a conversation with somebody may be enough to serve a greater good because it, it gets, people talking about an issue that's important and, you know, particularly in our day and age, there is a lot of misinformation and, and dis disinformation on that. And sometimes the views that we hold, you know, we might be scared of having some sort of conflict and so never call each other out on each other's views, knowing that we can do it in a respectful manner. Um, and her book offers like a number of different suggestions and solutions about how it's not things aren't that dire, um, you know, if we're able to work together. And one of the ways that we can work together is being able to talk to each other and doing so in a respectful manner that, and while being committed to trying to see issues from someone else's perspective. Uh, so yeah, Catherine Hale's book, Saving Us, is a, is a great read. Awesome. Hey, Alistair, thanks again for being on the, the podcast and uh, appreciate your time today. Yo, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. You can find information in the show notes on the Volga Germans, the Tarnak Farm tragedy, the Sariposa prison break in Afghanistan, Alistair's works of fiction, and the Spark on Substack. Thanks for listening to the NSP. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>